And welcome. Welcome to the No Name Yet podcast. That is the podcast with no name. And my guest for today is Tony Foggia, a long time friend and, uh, yeah, guy who's pursuing acting. <laughs> Tony Foggia. I'm chasing it down. I'm You're chasing it down. It down. Uh, it's, it's so nice to be here, Rich. I can't believe that I'm on your podcast. Yes, uh, I'm on. I've been I've been wanting to bring you on for uh, quite a long time, and I'm glad that we could match up and that we could do this. And uh, if you go back uh, to other podcasts, uh, there's a few of them where I screw up the introduction. And uh, it's usually when Gritty is on. Uh, Gritty is a young man uh, that I met through a member of my church mm -hmm. uh, who uh, is a podcaster himself. And when he's on my podcast, he usually takes it over. And uh, when I do mess up the uh, intro, he's like, leave it in. And uh, <laughs> well, you didn't you didn't mess up the intro today because we did it twice. That's right. And, oh, I, I wish you hadn't have said that. <laughs> because Bo, Gritty and Justin are going. To... Yes, I forgot to push record. This time you pressed record. That's right. <laughs> I deus me. We've gotten all those awkward jitters out of the way. Yes. yes. So now we can just relax. Right. And be ourselves. We were, and, and as a quick recap, we were talking about how we met. Yes. Um, and uh, it immediately started partying our faces off <laughs> <laughs> for months and months on end. All the while bringing the wonders of Shakespeare to the little hamlet of Cortland, New York. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you know when I do think about uh, that time, that Tony and I both went to SUNY Cortland, uh, in the middle, the geographic center of New York State. Yeah. Do you remember that? The Topps oh, parking lot was the. That was the big selling feature. Yeah. <laughs> Come to the geographic center of New York State. That's right. And uh, yeah, the amount of partying that we did is, uh, I mean, at this point um of my life and i think back to it I'm like how did i even get through um yeah i mean i i don't necessarily remember putting as much time into my studies as i put into other things but we were kind of fortunate in that um a lot of our, there was a lot of crossover right our a lot of our studies were actually done on the stage or in right. in, in a rehearsal hall or something like that so we had we definitely had it easier than a lot of than the, than the math kids, you know. Yes, yes. The science kids, you know, we had it a lot easier than they did. And 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 there was a lot of crossover with, uh, uh, you know, college cultures. I always thought it was uh, really interesting that the uh, theater department was hanging out with the rugby team because of our association with Jack Harris. Yeah, exactly. Or there would always be like these interlopers, like these people that would just like pop in to do one play, you know, that weren't even part of the theater department, but then all of their friends came. Right. Along, yeah. you know, to see it or to support it. Yeah, we, we really got, there was always some something like that going on. Um, there was this, so the first, when I first got to Cortland State, um, we were doing Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And, uh, 
this kid named David Olmsted had been cast in the lead as Pip. But he wasn't a theater major, but he had done another play, I think, for Tom Hischak, and Tom Hischak liked him, and he looked really good for the part. So he got, he got cast as the lead, and I remember I was cast as, I think, his father. And then, very shortly after that, Tom, uh, David Olmsted dropped out of the play because his parents didn't want him to do it because they thought his grades would suffer because it was a big commitment. Mm-hmm. So I got moved up to the lead. I got moved up to playing Pip in Great Expectations. And I learned at the young age of 20 how to cry on stage by staying up and drinking the whole night before. Because <laughs> <laughs> it made me super emotional to the point where Charles Dickens' words made me weep. <laughs> But it was a great learning experience because at that age I didn't have what it took to, to actually make, to actually you know be able to cry on stage right I, you know and then and I remember that and so then I, every we all got sort of everybody got moved up one I got moved up to the lead and Kenny Tishan who had been like I don't know grave digger or something like that got moved up to playing the father so he got the part that I was supposed to play and he and I were on stage one time and it was just he and I. And it's sitting at a rickety wooden table with a enormous ceramic sugar bowl. I don't know why, but that's what props decided. So at the end of the scene, we, Kenny goes to stand up and his knee bumps the rickety wooden table and the enormous ceramic cookie jar smashes into a thousand pieces. <laughs> Was this during a show? <laughs> Roll, you know, off the table into a thousand pieces on the stage. And we only had like one line left and it was like, you know, goodbye or something. (laughs) (laughs) Trying really hard to gather up all of these ceramic shards really quickly during just a goodbye. Right. It was very, it was very awkward. There was always stuff like that happening uh, at Cortland State. And, And it was, and it was usually involved somebody who wasn't really part of the theater department. Like, do you, I don't know if you remember this girl named Sue Mraz. Oh, I do. Yes. Pretty Swedish looking girl yeah. with blonde hair. She and I were in um, Arms of the Man, George Bernard Shaw. And she and I were on stage and she was wearing what's called a fall, which is just like a fake. Oh, I remember this. And I noticed her, you know, touching the back of her head during it. We had this really long scene. All of those lines were speeches. Every line was like a paragraph. And she's fiddling with the back of her hair. And I noticed the ponytail starting to slide down the back of her head. And I could see this panicked look coming over her face. And before I know it, it fell off and she ran off the stage. And (laughs) we had like two pages of paragraphs. Was that the play that that with the revolve? Yeah, the the set was on two discs that revolved. Yeah. And so they could show the outside of the house and then they could spin and show the inside of the house. Do you remember flipping that thing over? Because they built it upside down on the stage. I I think I remember. I definitely remember mishaps happening with that thing. I remember right. it being really treacherous to roll to 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 to, to spin. Yeah, they well, it was built upside down, and and so we we slid one of the revolves down to the orchestra pit. Okay. And lowered the orchestra pit, and. We had these poles to steady it. And at one point, uh, a rope needed to be thrown across the pit when this 
you know, the, this revolve that is built in pieces um, is, is, is standing on its end. Oh, and, you know, I mean, you're hearing like bolts fall out of it. <laughs> and so uh, uh, Chris Trocher, Christine Trocher, takes the rope, one of those theater ropes, you know, the thick ones, and throws it to Tom Hischak and it hits him in the face. And it just his hair, just his hair like went up like this. And he was like, Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then when we were building the set on top of the revolve, right. Um, I guess the, the theater uh one oh one students had built the flats and <laughs> And they were not the regular flats, but they were like heavier wooden flats that required, I guess, glue. Yeah. And I guess they didn't use any. So we're putting up this wall and the wall starts, it's a window unit. Yeah. And it starts collapsing over Kenny Tashan. You do remember that. Yeah. And everybody was like froze, but he was standing in the window, which didn't have any panes or anything. And it just went right over his head. Yeah, yeah, I, I do remember that. I thought that happened during strike, but I do remember that happening. Yeah. Yeah, that set was treacherous. Um, I had to climb through windows on that set. Um, <laughs> and, and not kick it over. You know, right. That's how flimsy it felt. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. I, I do remember, remember the, I think they were called the Heck Brothers, or Hike Brothers. Or oh, the Hikes, yes. These twins that were on the crew. And so, mm-hmm. and they were big guys. So like one was supposed to spin it to the one to the left and the other one had to spin the other one to the right. And I remember being on stage and it's starting to spin and then stopping. <laughs> and then you would hear creak and it would stop. And then you would hear, Christine, Christine, I can turn it. <laughs> I remember that. I do remember that. Footsteps come running into you and then you turn away. Yeah. You know, my, my first show was um, uh, as is on the crew. Yeah, you were the stage manager, weren't you? No, I, I was uh, I was in the in the ceiling with a spotlight. Oh, okay. And uh, I guess at the time it was pretty groundbreaking that uh, a college would be doing the play as is. We were the first college to do it. Yeah. Oh, we were the first college to do it. And for those who are not familiar with the play as is, it's a, a, a play about uh, people with AIDS and what was going on at that time in the 80s. Yeah, it was written in the early 80s. It's one of the first plays written about AIDS. Yes. And, uh, you know, that was my first experience, you know, working on a show in college. Yeah. And, uh I, I quickly found out that when mishaps did happen, uh, that it was almost impossible to stop laughing when you're on the crew because you had the headphones <laughs> and everybody was laughing in your ear. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember this or not, but I think it's like they're during like the first during the tech rehearsal where uh, uh, Susan uh had uh, the speech, you know, she starts the play and that uh, she uh, crossed the, 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 the 
the stage, the set was built is pretty much what it was like compartments kind of almost like a, a raised from the actual stage and there's stairs going down on each side. So she starts in the middle and she's doing her speech and she goes down the stairs, crosses in front of the set and then goes back up and then crosses and then sits down on a stool and she did it several times and and it basically went that she would start her speech she'd fall down the stairs stumble down the stairs and and dr palmer would call her all kinds of names yes. <laughs> she crossed and then she'd stumble up the stairs. Then Dr. Palmer would make her go back and do it again. And then she did it twice. And then when she finally got to the stool, she didn't quite get to the stool. Right. And so she's talking. And, it, and all she, all it is is my spotlight. There's no other lights on the stage. That's what so she's hard. Yeah. yeah, she's blinded, yeah. Um, you know, and she has you know uh one of the most unforgiving directors that anyone could have out out in the you know in the seats well she goes to sit on the stool and 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 in my ears they're like no no susan stopped she she, she's not she's gonna sit down she's gonna sit down she's not in front of the she's not in front of the stool she's gonna sit down and she sits down and bam it goes down on her butt (laughs) The stool, the, stool, <laughs> the stool is like two feet to her left. And of course, like, I mean, you know, roaring laughter from the crew. And I'm in the ceiling. So, you know, Dr. Palmer's sitting under me, you know, 40 feet under me. And I hear him go, and not anybody who thinks this is funny, all you people in the crew can just go. You're gonna fire you if you don't stop lying. <laughs> I do remember that so well. I was there, but you know, well, Susan's mistake was in thinking that number one, you're right. It's blind it's blinding when you're in a spotlight. Yes. But her mistake was in thinking that she couldn't look where she was going. Who goes through life not looking at the stairs they're walking up or walking down? Right. Who goes through life just not looking if there's a chair there before you? <laughs> she got it in her head that she had to stare at the audience the entire time. Right. You know. Well, I'm wondering if Doctor Palmer put that in her head. He might have. He might have. But I, a normal person would at least acknowledge the staircase that right. I'm stumbling up or down. I don't know if you remember this little detail during Hamlet, but when people were going up and down the stairs, uh, Dr. Palmer was like, why is everybody looking at their feet when they're coming down the stairs? People don't usually do that. So we're, of course you do. (laughs) But we got it in our heads. The way you crossed behind a chair was first you turn your body to the right and you walked halfway to behind the chair and then you spun your body to the left to cross the other way behind. (laughs) But that was just how people behaved. Yeah. No one looks at their feet going downstairs. I mean, what kind of a world do we live in? (laughs) 
Now, this band that we're talking about, Dr. Palmer, was a great theater director, but he was he was a maniac. Yeah. Yeah. But he was really, really talented and uh, really opened my eyes about directing because he had a very filmic director's eye. Mm-hmm. You know, he always, always created some level of, you just wanted to film it. It was so beautiful. A yeah. Lot of his, a lot of his uh, blocking and things like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he was one of those rare professors that you could learn a lot from and you could also party with. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, which we did. Right. Which was good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. It was good and bad because he could, the more he got to know about you, the more he could use against you. Right. Which he did quite a bit, you know, with me and others. And, you know, not that he ever got really nasty, but, you know, just close enough to be able to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or um, shame you into a performance, whatever, (laughs) whatever it was. But yeah, it was a great experience. What a wonderful experience. And I was only there for two years. I was only there for the junior and senior year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were, were you two years behind me or one year behind me? I think I was two years behind you. Because I, I graduated in 87. Yes, I uh, graduated in 89. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, my, my favorite show that I was a part of was Hamlet. Yeah, you were my, uh, well, you were, I was Polonius and you were... Reynaldo. Reynaldo. And do you remember Howard Stern was so obsessed with creating these clear plexiglass tools? Yeah. Like clipboards and boxes and pens and things. And um, then they always fell apart in our hands. (laughs) (laughs) Because he would just, there was plexiglass glued together. Right. And eventually the glue got dry and, you know, you're going to hand me the box and it would be in three pieces or something. Like that. <laughs> so the, the show was uh, supposed to be Hamlet in the future, uh, but with kind of traditional costumes. Yeah, with a spaceport standing in for Elsinore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, he did it really well. What we thought at the time was futuristic mm-hmm. was, of course, velvet robes. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the future, right? It's obvious. We're we're already headed there. <laughs> but to make it to make sure that everyone knew that it was the future, he would have these like red and orange and blue lights periodically swoop across the stage. <laughs> To signify, you know, Star Wars level spaceships. Yes. But that was a good show. It really was. It was a pretty powerful show. Um, We had the most effeminate Hamlet. (laughs) We did. I mean, Doug Smith was masculine looking, Mm -hmm. you know, with the receding hairline and the beard and all that. but had sort of a Kelsey Grammer kind of delivery kind of to him. Right. And, and, and uh, it worked. Yeah, it did. He did a good job with Hamlet. And we had an African-American um, Gertrude. Right. Ivy Phillips. Ivy Phillips in, her, in her greatest work. Yeah. Um, Probably was her greatest part that she played in college. Yeah. 
We had Greg Wolf phoning it in as Claudius. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not, I don't mean that. I just mean that he was perfect for that role. No, he was perfect. Yeah. And and Joe uh, Casterline was perfect for uh, Horatio. Horatio. And Joe Gazinski was Laertes. Was Laertes. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie version of Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? No. Do you know what that play is? Yes. Yep. Uh, it's the same story, but seen through the eyes of those two characters. And so the movie is fantastic in that, you know, through the through a doorway in the background, you'll see a scene from Hamlet, you know, going on. But uh-huh. it's just going on. It's not what the movie's about, you know. It's really cool that way. But yeah, I loved doing that. And the way Dr. Palmer made us all audition. He made it. Did you audition for the role of Hamlet? Uh, I don't believe so. Because I know I did, Joe Kaczynski did, Kenny Tashan did, Doug Smith did, and maybe one other person did. And what the requirement was, you had to do two of Hamlet's speeches at the audition. So we all went in with like three or four. We all mm-hmm. were like trying to outdo each other. Um, and uh, they were hard. It was hard to memorize, number one, hard to memorize it, and then to, under- to understand it, you know, at that age to infuse it with any kind of real meaning at that age because mm-hmm. we were teenagers you know it was, it was not easy to do but um but i guess doug smith was the right person was the right person for the for the job you know? right well your your uh polonius was fantastic i'm so grateful that i did not have any other performance to draw from or to cloud my mind you know, like I definitely did with Cabaret. In, in Cabaret, I was practically trying to copy Joel Grey as mm. much as I could because I didn't have anything of my, my own to bring to it. And, uh, and Dr. Palmer even told me later on, he said, if I had been directing Cabaret, you would not have been cast as the MC. He said, I would have cast Oscar Pabon. Mm. And I thought, you know what? I would have too. I probably, probably would have too. Oscar Pabon had a very natural sexuality to him. You know, a natural fieriness. Did you know Oscar? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, he he would have he would have been wonderful. And, and, and as it turned out, uh, Oscar Pabon almost killed me during cabaret <laughs> because Oscar Pabon was relegated to the working the fly system. So so he was in charge of the real heavy things that hung above your head. <laughs> When they should come down and when they shouldn't you know so yeah um and, and he was always drunk he was always drunk you know at, at showtime at curtain time he was always wasted and he had these really heavy sandbags that he had to you know maneuver and all that kind of right stuff. Um, well the, i have a, a story to share with you about oscar pabon um i a friend of mine from high school uh, chris strapini went to Cortland also and we met uh, this guy named uh, Joel Junker. And uh, we hung out for uh, about a year. Uh, he ended up leaving Cortland. But there was one weekend that just stands out above the rest. Uh, we went to the a student activity center and we uh, watched uh, the, A Christmas Story, the movie. And, you know, it was the first time we saw it. I think it had just come out. And we loved it. It was hilarious. Then we went up 
to the Dowd Fine Arts Center and saw House of Blue Leaves. The play, yeah. Yes, which is a hilarious off-the-wall play. I saw it there, too. So Oscar Pabon was in it. Right. And we were seated. This took place in the Black Box Theater. And uh, like, if you were coming in the, the, the doors, we were seated uh, house right on, on, the, on this platform. There was like nobody in front of us. We were raised and we were right next to the, the, the action, the, the space where they're performing. So Oscar Pabon had a couple speeches like right in front of us. And so we talked to him afterwards and we said, you know, gosh, you know, we really enjoyed this play. We enjoyed your performance. He was like, thanks. Goodbye. So the next day, uh, we go and see a Christmas story again and then go see House of Blue Leaves and sat in the same spot. And uh, so Oscar Pabone notices us and winks at us. Well, then there was one more performance. We went again, sat in the same spot. Talking. <laughs> he crossed and saw us there. And he just gave a very, very short giggle and went on with his, with his dialogue. But yeah, that, that's, that's uh, really the closest that I, uh, uh, I was with Oscar. Uh, I did, you know, ran into him at a couple parties and that. But. Yeah. Um, I think that he didn't like me and I understand he didn't like me and I didn't understand at the time why, but, but someone had, <laughs> so someone, someone said Oscar was drunk operating the fly system. And I must have said, and I'm sure I did say to Tom, the director, I don't feel safe because Oscar is drunk and he's out. Well, he took me, he, he found me at the cast party. The minute I walked into the cast party, he made a beeline for me. And he was like, I want to talk to you. You know, you were the one that said I was drunk operating the fly system and I'm not a drunk, blah, 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 blah. You know? <laughs> and I don't know, we, we kind of made up, but that was, it, we weren't that close. He was much, he was older than I was. I had just gotten there and he, it, was his, it was his last semester, I think, mm -hmm. something like that. And of course, as a senior, gosh, you would expect to get the leading role. You, know? right. you wouldn't expect this. I mean, I, I arrived as a junior, okay? Because I, I went two years someplace else. So nobody knew me when I, when I arrived. And to, to, to get that part, you know, probably rubbed some people the wrong way who had been there a while. I, under, I definitely understand that. Yes. So uh, after college, uh, you went to New York. Yeah. And uh, uh, pursued yeah. acting. And like I said, it was so different back then. There was not, there was no TV or film with very little TV. Like Saturday Night Live was it. In New York uh, City. In New York City, it was mostly theater. And all there was was backstage newspaper. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't cell phones. There was none of that. There was backstage newspaper and a picture, a black and white picture and a resume. Um, and everything was done through the mail, which was really slow. And I didn't have an agent. And I, I, I mean, I found work off, off, off Broadway acting, which didn't pay stage managing, which paid very little or running lights, which paid very little, but I, I needed to survive New York city. And at that time, 
I, I didn't see my options. I didn't understand my options. So I, I opted for a corporate job. And I opted to make theater secondary in my life because I wasn't able to make a go of it. And I needed to pay my rent and, you know, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for a long time, I was in corporate America. I was in the music industry for a number of years. And, uh, and then, and then um, you know, mergers happened and, and my job was shed in a, you know, in a merger. And so I did end up in Japan, yeah, for 10 years teaching here, there, and everywhere in Japan, teaching. And, and luck, luckily enough, working in television as well. They have a public uh, network over there called NHK. And, uh, and I was, well, I did commercials. I worked in commercials, but I also worked on this educational TV show called Ego de Asobu, which means let's play with English. <laughs> and it's basically like romper room for Japanese kids. And I was there to teach them basic English words and phrases, kind of like an AI version of myself. Okay. Just kind of going, it's a gorilla. It's a gorilla. It's a gorilla. You know, everything had to be in threes. It's a black car. It's a black car. It's a black car. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was real. Everything was real basic. But you know, did you did, you did that uh, did that dialogue appear in your dreams? It probably did at the time. Yeah, right. um, but everybody was really nice about it. In fact, the director at one point gave me the keys to his standard shift black Camaro, which I don't know how to drive standard shift, or I barely knew how to drive standard shift. I don't know how to drive it. Um, and I was supposed to stop on a dime. He put the tape on the ground, stop the car right on this tape. And then you turn out the window and you look where the camera is focused and the lights are shining and you say, it's a black car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I almost stripped his black car because I don't know how to drive standard gym. <laughs> um, but luckily I was able to stop when he, where he wanted me to stop. Um, but then, then we did another one at the zoo where the gorilla would not cooperate. <laughs> Because first of all, they keep you pretty far from the gorilla. There's uh-huh. like, there's like a moat between you and the gorilla. Okay. Like, I'm on a fence. I'm on a fence. There's a moat, and then there's the gorilla. Uh, and the gorilla can only come so far, but we need him in the shot. We need him like right here in the shot for me to say it's a gorilla. So we get the gorilla close, and they get the camera set up, and they get the lights set up, and they get the sound set up, and all of that takes a long time that a gorilla does not want to wait for. <laughs> The gorilla turns and starts walking back towards its habitat. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of the crew people comes out with a banana going, banana, 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 to coax the gorilla back and throws the banana across the moat. So the gorilla picks up the banana, eats the banana, and then turns around and walks back to its habitat before the cameras are set up. <laughs> How long did that take? Oh, that took a long time. That was like a whole day thing. Mm at the zoo. Um, the koalas were asleep. We had to try and wake them up without startling them. That's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was fun. That was a fun job. And, and it kept me sort of in, in working, you know, in front of the camera and working with different people. And it's funny, they say the same things, only they say it in Japanese. But when you hear the phrase back to one, in J- even in Japanese, you hear it so many times during the mm-hmm. day. It, suddenly it makes sense to you, you know, you know what they want. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so I did that. And then, and then eventually at the ripe old age of 48, I, I found the courage and 
you know, and the logistics of how to come back to New York and, and seriously pursue acting. Well, now the, the landscape is different now. There's tons of TV done here and tons of filming done here. That's in New York City. In New York City, there's tons of that now. And now there's the internet and now every, you know, a lot of my auditions now are done, you know, self-tape. Put yourself on QuickTime, <clears throat> make a tape and send it to us kind of thing. Um, but I, as I said before, what really changed for me was getting an agent because with the with, before I had the agent, I was getting auditions myself for um, for principal roles in non-union television. I mean, speaking parts in those murder reenactment shows mm. where they combine real footage with dramatizations. Um, and sometimes it's scripted and sometimes it's all improv and sometimes it's just a pantomime. It depends. And it's kind of like, I equate it with junior varsity as opposed to bar high school varsity sports. There's junior varsity where you kind of learn what you're doing. And that's what that kind of uh, non-union television is. And mm -hmm. I did that, you know, for the first three or four years that I was here. And then, uh, and then I joined SAG because I had already been a member of Actors' Equity. So I was able to join SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. And then I, I got an agent, but that was hard. That was hard. I sent out uh, 20, at least 20 press packets, envelopes with my picture, my resume, cover letter, and a list of all the casting directors that I've already met. All the casting directors that I've already auditioned for on my own. And that went a long way because that's half of an agent's job is getting the casting directors to know who you are. Mm. But I approached these agents saying, these are the casting directors who already know who I am. And out of those 20 press packets, one person responded, oh. uh, only one. And she said, come to my office, bring two monologues. And I went to her office and I did two monologues. And then she gave me a piece of paper with a copy from a Coca-Cola TV commercial said, you have 30 seconds to memorize this, and then I want to see you do it. Well, I did it, and I wasn't memorized. I was kind of sloppy, and she said that was sloppy, but, you know. But she said, I'm not going to make my decision now. She said, I'll call you. And then a week later, she called and said, I will send you out. And then I started getting the kind of auditions that I want. Then I started auditioning for Law & Order, you know, or Elementary, or Blue Bloods, or, or Film, or and a, and a lot of commercials. At my age, it's penis this and prostate that. <laughs> Every commercial is for a pill to make us put a smile on your face to get through the day, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, then, then I started getting serious auditions for TV and film, where for the first time, you know, I'm sitting in the waiting room and suddenly I recognize the, the people that I'm waiting with, you know, which is different than non-union television. Mm -hmm. Although in non-union television, I did see the same people over and over again at auditions and on shoots. Um, and, uh, and some of them, you know, you will, they, I do see them pop up in, you know, The Perfect Murder or uh, I Killed My BFF or Crime to Remember, those, those kinds of murder reenactment shows, mm -hmm. which are so well done. The crew are completely professional people. It's the actors that are trying to be, you know, trying to make a, a real go of it. So they're all very serious. And when they do casting for the principal roles in that, they're, yeah, I remember the first time I got cast in, in the lead role in one of those, they called me in for a callback. Might've been the second callback, but the director was in the room and he looked like he wanted to kill me. He looked like he hated me. I, did, I, I, you know, I, I, I remember thinking, why am I here? This guy looks like 
he doesn't even know me, but he looks like he despises me or like, like he's got me all figured out and he just, I'm not his type of person, whatever it was, you know, it just looked like he hated me. But I, I learned later on that it, he was just really deep in thought, I guess, while he was looking at me or maybe he was trying to imagine me in, in the role. The truth is I, I got cast because, <laughs> because I really look like the guy in real life. <laughs> And also, I can speak without it sounding completely fake. You know, okay. what I, mean? like I can act a little. So, uh, but then, but then, so we did this, and then I felt the pressure of being the lead because I knew that if I wasn't on point, like if I was forgetful, if I was late, then we went over budget and we went over schedule, and there was a lot of people working all on schedule, and I didn't want to be the one holding everybody up, mm. even though I had the most lines and I had the most scenes and all of that. Um, and then he would come up to me like we would shoot a scene, we would shoot an argument scene. And he would say to me, he would say things like, can you give me 40% more until you cross the fireplace? And then after you cross the fireplace, give me about 10% less. <laughs> <laughs> and me pretending to be, pretending to be a professional actor would go, okay, okay. I know exactly what you mean. I had, no I had no clue what he meant. But, you know, looking back on it now, it was like, you know, you're overacting in this part, and in this part, you're boring. So stop overacting and stop being boring. Can you do that much, please? We're paying you $140 a day. Come on, you know? Just don't overact and don't be boring. Can you do that much, please? You know, but that was a really good experience. But again, that was non-union. So mm -hmm. that, and now once I haven't gotten an agent and she started sending me on real auditions, which I never got, you know, it, I've been with her for five years, five years of, you know, the good thing is I'm getting a reputation among casting directors because the same ones keep calling me back. Mm. Like I had, I auditioned for three episodes of this show called Mindhunter, which was on Netflix. It was like an FBI procedural period piece kind of thing. I had three auditions for three different episodes, didn't get a one. But, you know, that's okay. That's how it goes sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know, the, it's, it's good that the same casting director keeps calling me back. And even though Mindhunter is not on anymore, they have called me back for other shows. So that's an important step in any actor's career is you have to get known by the casting directors. First of all, you have to know which casting directors are working right now. Because there are casting directors that actually do three television shows that are all on TV right now. Okay. And then there are a ton of casting directors that haven't worked in four years. Who do, who, who, those are the ones that tend to make the rounds to all the pay and play workshops where actors will drop 40 bucks to have five minutes with a casting director and do a scene or do a monologue. Mm -hmm. um, but the casting directors who are busy working, you know, a tight TV schedule or a tight movie schedule, um, those are the ones that are hard to get a hold of hard to get seen by so it definitely helps to have an agent submit the actor because casting directors offices get mail stacked so high and they basically divide it into two categories those that are submitted by agents and those that are submitted by actors themselves mm -hmm. and they've only got so many hours in the day and they can only get through so much of that mail seriously that um, the ones that are submitted by actors are you know maybe they're looked at eventually but that role has already been cast mm -hmm. usually so you may go into the casting director's portfolio of 
because you know casting directors have to audition for their job just like actors and a lot of actors don't realize that but when a when a when producers are putting together a film they want to know who's the best casting director for this project which casting director has a stable of actors that they know and trust and can send us that fit what we're looking for for this project now if that's a period piece they're generally going to want people that would fit period, you know, look good in period costumes, something odd about their face or they're thin or, you know, just something like that for period work. Or the thing is, it's either period or futuristic. Both period and sci-fi tend to draw from the same pool of, of actors quite a bit, mostly classically trained actors too, a lot of times. Um, but casting directors, you know, it's good to know them. And then, uh, and I would say for any actor starting out, certainly when, you know, for me is still getting to know casting directors is job number one, because that's how you're going to get an agent and you need an agent to get the right kind of auditions. And, and you were just cast in a part. <clears throat> yes. So uh, eight years. So yeah, like eight years ago, I came to the United, back to the United States to pursue acting. I got an agent five years ago. I've been auditioning you know, with my hopes high for five years. But now, um, yeah, I've been cast in something I'm not supposed to talk about. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but it is my first SAG principal role. So for me, that what, what that means is it is under the Screen Actors Guild. Um, it means that my credit, that my contract was negotiated by my agent, which has never happened before. So she negotiated my billing and my rate and my dressing room and all, all those kinds of things. That's never happened before. So it's my first SAG principal role. I've done SAG work before, but it was always background, you know, which I'm so grateful for. So I've worked mm. with so many wonderful directors, but um, this is my first SAG principal role. And I have been, you know, pursuing this seriously for eight years. But like I said, it's been a step-by-step -step process. You know, the first step was just getting work in TV, then it was getting in the union, then it was getting an agent, and then it was getting auditions. And it takes a lot of patience, a lot of perseverance in my case. And, and I would say that I think relationships count just as much as talent, if not more than talent <clears throat> in certain cases, because there's a lot of talent out there, but not all of it is talent that you want to spend 16 hours a day with. So being easy to work with and talented goes quite far you know in TV. so um as as part of uh yeah as part of uh surviving in new york city uh you became a wedding officiant oh yeah that's right because so this is my kind of like new york 2.0 for me because like you said before i came to new york in my early 20s to be an actor but fell off course ended up in the corporate world this is my second chance and I didn't want to repeat any of the mistakes. And in my opinion, going to work full-time for someone else would have been, would be a mistake for me because I would not be able to pursue acting the way I want to. And the way I want to means, you know, when my agent calls, there have been times when my agent calls and said, can you get over to West 45th street in an hour? Yes, I can mm -hmm. now, but that wasn't always the case when I worked corporate America. So uh, one of the things I did when I lived in Japan okay, I was a teacher in Japan weekdays, but I wanted to work on weekends too. And it's very popular in Japan to hire a Caucasian wedding officiant who can speak enough Japanese to do the wedding ceremony in Japanese. And I did 
for gosh the last four or five years i was in japan i spent every weekend going here there and everywhere doing weddings on the weekends um and so but all in japanese and so when i came back to the united states my mother said well why don't you do weddings there in new york you're ordained and i was i'm ordained but new york city also requires a separate license so i got licensed by new york city as well but with just with the ordination, I can do weddings anywhere outside of New York City. So all of New York State, all of New Jersey, and I do. Mm -hmm. um, and the great thing is, you know, it's when I want to, and it's for how much I want to, uh, or how little I want to. It's all, it's all, you know, I make, I make the decisions. But it, it gives me so much time in my schedule that I can devote to you know, auditioning. And, and at this point, let's be honest, as an, as an out of work actor, my job is auditioning. And, and it, a few times a week, my agent will say to me, email me and say, here's your audition. This is the deadline. Get me the tape. Well, then I go to work. I set up the camera. I set up the lights. I, you know, pick the wardrobe, do the hair, the makeup, if it's required, whatever. And then I film it several times. Well, of course, memorize it first, film it several times, then um, I film a slate, which is where you just say your name and your height and all that, and full body shot and all that. But then I put it all on iMovie because I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm a I put it all on iMovie. And lately what I've been doing, especially during the pandemic, it's hard to get a reader. A reader is where you have another actor who's just off camera, who mm -hmm. does the other character's lines. But I haven't had that. So I do the other character's line because I'm such a professional. <laughs> In the looping booth. So I'm using iMovie and I'm, while I'm recording myself, I'm leaving enough space for the other person's lines, which I'm going to dub in later. But I'm reacting as if I'm speaking now. Mm -hmm. you know I mean? I'm reacting as if the other person's speaking now, trying to leave enough space. And then in the editing, when I have it on iMovie, I go in with my mic and I drop in the other character's lines really softly. Um, and then I edit it all together, you know, so it looks so professional and just put the slate on the end or at the beginning. And then I email it to my agent and, you know, or send it to my agent and she sends it to production. And then I never hear anything, never hear anything. That's what it's been for five years. And, you know, I auditioned for Blue Bloods, Elementary, Law and Order, you know, you know Mindhunter, all this stuff. I submit commercial after commercial after commercial. Um, and my agent is always saying, oh, you're, you'll be a natural in commercials. Look at that smile. You'll be a natural in commercials. I have auditioned for hundreds of commercials and I haven't been that. <laughs> what helps you cope with that kind of rejection? Well, I don't take it personally because look, I've also been the stage manager. I've sat on the other side of the table going, <laughs> 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 but, but I know that it's not personal. Mm -hmm. You know, it really isn't personal. Um, <clears throat> And what's interesting, and I never knew this going into it, was the different levels and layers of approval that an actor has to go through to get two lines on Law and Order. You're a two-line orderly, okay? You don't even have a name. You're just orderly. They give you two lines, and so the casting assistant, if the casting assistant likes your tape, because they're the ones that put you on tape, is the mm -hmm. casting assistant. If they like it, if they think it looks good, they'll give it to their boss, the casting director. If the casting director likes it, they pass it on to whoever is directing that week's episode. 
So it's not like a guy who directs all season. He directs that week's episode, he or she directs that week's episode. And if he or she likes it, then they pass it on to the, the studio slash producers, you know, Dick Wolf Productions or whoever produces that show. And if they like it, then they pass it up to the executives at NBC. And if you can pass through all of those layers of approval without offending anyone, without looking too much like someone's snarky brother-in-law that they don't like. <laughs> wow. Or, you know, or, or for any yeah. little reason. You know, uh -huh. If you can pass all those layers of approval, you'll get those two lines on Law and Order. Now, when it comes to film, it's not as many. Mm -hmm. It's the casting director. If they like you, they give you to the director. If the director likes you, they give you to the producer or producers. And if they like you, you're in. That kind of happened with me with this part. It's going to be on Netflix. I can say that much. It's going to be on Netflix. Anyway, my, e my uh, agent emails me, here's the two lines, put yourself on tape, play around with it, do it a couple of different ways. And I did that. And then about a week or two later, I got an email saying, you've been pinned for this role. And so, of course, I had to Google what that meant. I've never been pinned. <laughs> so I Google what it meant. And it meant some of the people that are going to approve you like you, but not everybody. So hold your horses, which they didn't have to tell me that much, you know? Yeah. Anyway, two days later, she calls me and I didn't recognize the number, so I declined it. <laughs> 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 I knew it was a New Jersey number, but I declined it. Because if, if it was her, it would say her name, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, it called again. Two minutes later, I thought, oh, maybe it's a wedding client. I picked it up and it was her, it was my agent. And she said, hi, I'm calling with your booking offer. Now, I had never heard those two words together, booking offer. I didn't, I said, what? Could you say that again? She said, yeah, I'm calling with your booking offer. And I was like, oh my God. And she said, this is your first legitimate booking with, with me, isn't it? And I said, it is. And I said, thank you very much for staying with me for five years. Because mm. she's been sending me out to audition after audition for five years. I sent her the biggest gift basket from Amazon, you know, immediately. Uh -huh. um, and she called me to thank me but you know that's that's another thing I learned so I've had this agent for five years and for five years I bake two dozen cookies every December and I send them to her mm. um, I know that it would be easy to do an Amazon thing or you know send a bottle of wine or whatever and I know a lot of people do that but I was taught or told to do something more personal. Mm -hmm. I'm not really crafty. You know, I'm not going to make tea cozies my own, you know, whatever. But I will bake cookies. And, send, and I do it every year. Uh, and, you know, I want to acknowledge her and thank her for all of her, you know, as hard as, as long as I've been persevering, she, she's been persevering too. Not that she doesn't have other clients. She has other clients, mm -hmm. you know. She has a lot of clients that are my age and look like me. I, we all run into each other all the time at auditions. But yeah, so this one's going to be on Netflix. Um, I got pinned, then I got cast. And here's the other thing. So they send me the script in an email. And it's great because it has your name embossed across it. On every page is your name embossed, which makes you feel really special. I found my scene on page 62. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I got the revision. A couple of days later, I got a revision PDF. And then a couple of days after, I got another revision PDF. 
these are the blue pages, these are the pink pages. And I keep rushing to page 62 to see if I have the blue pages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh God, don't, don't send the yellow pages. I don't want to be taken out of the movie. <laughs> and, um, and I know who my scene is with. And it isn't, it isn't someone that, that I particularly know because I'm of a certain age. This is a young you know, actor. Um, so I was recently, I spent the weekend with my friends in New Jersey. And when I said the name of this actor that I'm, they all went, oh my God. They were like, oh my God, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. And I was like, really? I, did, I didn't know that. That's, you know, not my age group, uh -huh. you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's one of those parts where I guess it is like, it, it equates to being a, what they call a co-star in television. In television, co-star means five lines or less. And it means they didn't hire you to act. They hired you to tell the story, to facilitate a part of the story. They don't want to see any backstory in you. They don't want you to steal the scene. They don't want you to linger. They don't want you to pause. They want you, if you're the doctor in the emergency room, say what's going on. Mm -hmm. Don't be, you know, the hairy doctor in the emergency room or the drunk doctor in the emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> Just be the doctor in the emergency room. Um, when it comes to being a guest star, which is they wrote this they wrote this episode about your character kind of okay or, or a member of your family you know you are central to this story they want to see you act they paid you to act you know um and if you're a series regular they catch you because of your basic personality how you come across on on screen is how they want you to come across reliably every week you know so yeah you may be called some heavy emotion here and there but by and large you were cast because of who you are naturally on screen the guest stars really have to do the heavy lifting you know they're really only there for one episode and they get all the drama mm. and then the co-stars five and less are like you know you don't don't act please so my part is in a film not a tv show and it equates to a co-star because it's less than five lines and it's one of those don't act please just move it forward you know move everything forward um, it's called a day player. I'm technically called a day player because I'm just there for the day. Okay. And my dressing room is the honey wagon. Really? Which you would think would be this tent with scantily clad women. <laughs> Something like that. Well, at least it's not the honey bucket. Not the honey bucket. No, it's the honey wagon. And uh, when I lived in Tacoma, the uh, the company that brought the uh, portable toilets was named Honey Bucket, and so that's what they were. The portable toilets were referred to as Honey Buckets. The Honey Bucket. Yeah. Did they smell as sweet as honey? Uh, no. They usually do. <laughs> there are some here in the park because our t our bathrooms in the park have been under construction for seventeen months. Okay. So we've been using <laughs> porta potties, which have been cleaned probably four times in 17 months. Oh, no. <laughs> there are bathrooms across the street in the child's playground, mm -hmm. but people stare at you for a long time when you go into the bathroom at a child's playground. <laughs> As they should. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, um, what were we talking about before? I've forgotten. Senior moment. Uh, you, you, you had uh, brought the, 
narrative to the name of your dressing room? The Honey Wagon, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of shooting done around New York City. Everywhere you go, you see these long silver trailers lining the streets. Um, and then you'll see like the craft services where they have this white tent with all the food. Um, but the wagons are, well, the nice ones, the ones that kind of with the windows that pop out to the side, those really nice trailers, mm -hmm. um, those are for the stars. And that's where they can lay down and they can have a nap and they can cook a little something, you know, um, they have Wi-Fi, you know, they're really cool. Then there's what's called the honey wagon. And the honey wagon is basically this long silver trailer that has like four or six doors. And two of the doors will say, one will say Desi and one will say Lucy. And I used to think, Desi and Lucy, or are they filming the, are they filming the remake of the I Love Lucy? No, that's men's room, ladies room. I've come to learn. Men's room is Desi, ladies room is Lucy. And then there are these little rooms off to the side, <clears throat> which I guess technically they would qualify as a dressing room. Um, it's basically like a walk-in closet. Um, it's got a mirror, one wall is a mirror, and the other opposite wall is a bench, a metal bench. There's like a rod where you can hang stuff up. Um, and, it's, and it's called a honey wagon. And it's basically just a place to change your clothes. Because let's be real, you're gonna be hanging out by the M&Ms most of the day anyway. That's what everyone does, especially if you're a day player. You're gonna be hanging out by the M&Ms, you said? Oh yeah, by the craft services table. That's where okay. everybody hangs out all day long. You know, When you're not shooting, you're hanging out, hanging out by the craft services table. And is that craft as in craft cheese? No, it's just, craft services means, uh, C, it's craft with a C. It just means the caterer. Okay. So craft services, they're going to set up like, it's like <laughs> Willy Wonka could not design a better like snack stand. <laughs> okay. It does have some healthy options. There's fruit, you know, there's a bowl of apples. And, and some of those granola bars. But then there's like everything from dinner mints to beef jerky and everything in between. <laughs> <laughs> there's croissants, there's, you know, M&Ms, there's, you know, all this candy, all these donuts, all these muffins and uh, coffee and, you know, soda and all that stuff. But then the same company, the catering company, they'll, they'll do dinner or lunch, depend, depends on the shoot. Um, and I've been on shoots where, which were, were hundreds of people. And um, of course the cast and crew get to eat first. Um, and then all of the, if, and I used to do this when I was a background actor and then the union background got to eat next. And then the non-union background got the scraps that were left. <laughs> that were left. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times it was, I've been on sets where, so I've been on sets where the, the craft services dinner included lobster tail. Oh, wow. It was the final day of shooting on a film and we all got lobster tail. Um, I think maybe the non-union got lobster shreds. I don't know. Yeah. But, but then I've been on others. I've been on others and you would never think this where the craft services is they put one of those 1979 orange and white jugs of water on the middle of the table with Dixie cups this tall and they throw a bag of M&Ms on the table and say, that's craft service. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so it all depends, you know, sometimes yeah. you do really well and sometimes not. But, but my agent said to me three years ago, because I, I was doing background on Mr. Robot and I got, I don't know, I got something like featured background, you know, which doesn't mean anything. I'll tell you what it means in a, 
in a second. But I was like, telling my agent, I'm like, I got, I'm, I'm doing featured background work on this robot. And she said, don't tell me that. And she said, and by the way, stop doing background work. You know, you're never going to get principal work if you keep doing background work. And that kind of made sense. So I stopped doing background work. And that was three years ago. Not that I ever made a ton of money doing background work, but I was a few hundred dollars a month and I liked it. Mm. Um, but the hours are really bad. But that time I got to do featured background work on Mr. Robot, it was an ego shattering experience. Ego shattering experience. <laughs> okay. Because um, all over the place are these production assistants and they've got headphones and they're running this way and they're running that way and they're talking and they're talking into their headphones and you don't know who they're talking to. And, and this one comes up, I was in, I was in um, holding like the bullpen and she grabs me by the arm and she starts walking me towards the set and she's talking to somebody on the phone and we stop. And then she grabs me another more and we walk another 10 feet and we stop. And she goes, no, I got him. I, I've got the old guy right now. Okay, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the old guy. Yeah, she came into the, uh, she came into the, you know, the holding room and she grabbed me by, you, come, grab me. And halfway to the set, she goes, I've got the old guy with me right now. <laughs> but you know, she was 22. Of course, I'm the old guy. Right. But that was the last time I did background work. Um, the hard thing about background, well, the good thing about background work is you get to know how to behave properly, right? You can't go up to Meryl Streep and go, so Meryl, what are you doing later? You know, they always tell you. you have you been a, on set with Meryl Streep? I have been on the post. No. And they always say, you are a colleague. You're not supposed to go all fanboy on Meryl Streep, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You're a colleague. You're supposed to be a professional. By the way, don't look them in the eye. I remember I was on set once. <laughs> I was on set once of elementary. And I was background, but it was, again, featured, because I was one of the few detectives that was allowed in the, in the apartment. And, um, and I was supposed to begin this. At the beginning of the scene, I am just off camera, like literally, like the camera is here, and I'm here and I'm supposed to enter the scene. <laughs> but one of the lead actors did not like the fact that I was facing in his general direction at the very top of the scene. And so I was po- discreetly and politely told, turn to the left. <laughs> <laughs> Face away from the set until you hear you know, your cue. <laughs> you know? And I was like, okay, I get it. I, I can play along, you know. Yeah. We've, all got, we've all got our issues, you know. Wow. But, but like I said, doing background work, I got to work with Spielberg and Scorsese and, um, and so many actors that, and directors that I really admired, you know, and it was just so, I was just so glad to be there. But the hours were long early. The hours were often very early, you know, very early, like 5 a.m. call time, you know, somewhere in nowhere, Brooklyn, you know, mm. <laughs> and yeah, you well. take most of your clothes with you because they got to choose. If they want you to wear the blue shirt with the white stripes or the white shirt with the blue stripes. (laughs) (laughs) But my my only experience uh, in film was when uh, uh, they filmed the place behind the pines in uh, the Schenectady area. Right. And they filmed at First National Bank. And... uh, I, I discovered that making film was like four or five people working and a hundred people standing around yeah. doing nothing bored out of their mind. It's wonderful. But <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. Like the closer you are to Merrill, 
to Meryl Streep herself, uh-huh. the busier it gets. Yeah. <laughs> like the center of the universe and everything <laughs> spins around her. The further out you get, you know, you get like the boom operator or like the hair assistant, you know, the outer planets that don't move very fast or very much. Right. <laughs> like I talked to a guy that uh, was in charge of changing lenses on the lighting. And, uh, you know, he pretty much explained he could sit there for hours and not do anything. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he's called the best boy. Okay. The best boy is the one who keeps all the lenses. I like the ones that carry like um, like a, <laughs> a swashbuckler's collection of tape around their belt area. You know, they've got this rope hanging from their belt that you might have a watch fob on, but it's got like multi different colors of tape different kinds of tape they can they it's called i think they're called grips they can go tape anything anywhere keep it down i remember <laughs> one i was doing um stand so i did stand-in work on spike lee's black klansman uh-huh um and i had never done stand-in work before so my first day there i found the other stand-ins and i'm like you guys you gotta i gotta stay close to you because i don't know the lingo i don't know you know stand-in work is there's a lot of responsibility you know you're you're second they call them second team so the first team, the actors go in and they do a rehearsal, right? And then the second team's called in to watch the rehearsal because you got to watch whatever actor you're standing in for. You got to watch when they stand up, when they sit down, when they do this with the prop, all that kind of stuff. Because later on, they're going to say, oh, okay, second team rehearsal, which is when the actors go have a latte and the stand-ins go there while they set the camera angles and the lights and the, you know, the background and everything has to be, it's painstaking. It takes forever. So they're not going to bother the actors. The mm-hmm. stand-ins get to do that. So I stood in on Black Klansman for three days. And, uh, and the, the, the assistant director, who I didn't know was, that's the other thing, get to know who people are. I didn't know who this assistant director was. But, but partly because the assistant director is usually like here, there, and everywhere. This guy, because he had a peg leg, and I'm not kidding, a peg leg. You don't see those very often in 2000, you know. Right, like a pirate's peg leg. Like a pirate's peg leg. Most people have a prosthetic something. Yeah, yeah. This guy, no, this guy had a peg leg, and he had a um, like a lectern with a clip line on it on the corner of the set. But like as soon as you entered the, the sound stage, he was there. I I didn't know what he was. You know, like some kind of assistant stage manager, whatever. Anyway, even if they're filming on the far side of the sound stage, and you're way over on this side of the sound stage, you cannot move while they're filming. God forbid. You stand up and your folding chair squeaks or goes backward. You know what I mean? Something mm-hmm. like that. Well, I didn't know it was that strict. I thought I could tiptoe to craft services to get some of those MMs. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And I heard peg leg coming behind me. Click, click, click. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> it says, you. You're not supposed to move at all when they call action. Get back to your seat. And I went back to where the other two standings were sitting. I was very sheepish. Ran back to my seat and I said, I just got yelled at by the pirate. (laughs) (laughs) And they started laughing. I said, I mean, I didn't know he was the assistant director. Uh That kind of clout, you know. They're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, when Charlie says be quiet, you gotta be quiet. (laughs) So, you know, you get, it's a, it's a, it's a learning process, but stand-in work was great. So I made them, I call it a mistake. It was a mistake. I call it a mm-hmm. mistake. 
I made the mistake of wearing a dark blue, navy blue turtleneck and a light blue V-neck sweater. I looked like a member of the Enterprise. To <laughs> 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 the point where the one production assistant who was supposed to get us on and off set kept referring to me as Starfleet. Hey, Starfleet. <laughs> Star- It was a good experience. And, and the other thing was, so I, I went by Anthony, you know, back then. Uh, and there was an Anthony who was on the crew, who was one of those people that circled very closely to Merrill. So mm. he's very busy. Anthony's very busy. Um, but, and so we were in this, um, this interrogation room, which was really tiny. I mean, there was barely enough room for the camera, the light, and the nine people that needed to be crammed into that room so i mean literally like the camera was this close and so they had to be very technical and very specific with the angle of my face and you know how i which way i was facing (laughs) this guy anthony was the guy holding like the white reflecting screen (laughs) and they kept going anthony move your face (laughs) they kept going anthony get anthony move to the left Anthony moved, and I, and I kept going like this, and they were like, don't move, don't move, you know, and I'm like, I didn't know, I kept getting out of the way, and then getting back into the frame, <laughs> they kept going, Anthony, we can't see you, Anthony, we can see you, like, it was so confusing, but it was fun, I was so glad to work on that movie, you know, and to work with Spike Lee, who was very relaxed, and, you know, he had it down, he has the process down, mm. he sits there very relaxed with He's got like these, this enormous planner, you know, like with all the storyboards and all the scenes and he knows, cause they don't like, you know, like the, they don't shoot in sequence. Mm-hmm. They shoot according to people's schedules. Okay. You know, and, and what, you know, what's pop, what's getting delivered on what day, you know, and what's, who's available on that day. I, rem- I remember, I learned when I did Blue Bloods, uh, if Tom Selleck wants to play, if the ni- weather's nice and Tom Selleck wants to play golf, they're not shooting Blue Bloods that day. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or they're shooting, or the B team is shooting, you know, the, the other scenes. On the mm-hmm. But hey, you know, he's not in every scene, so he has that luxury. So uh, as far as uh, director style, um, you know, you describe Spike Lee as laid back and... Um, I'm assuming there's a wide variety of styles among directors. Yeah, um, there are. I mean, some directors, like I did a Woody Allen movie, and Woody Allen barely talks to his actors at all. He he just, he trusts that his casting, he and his casting people have the right people in the right slots. Mm. And and, and he pretty much, I mean, he, he writes a script, and of course they have to stick to the script. But there, there are times, I think, when he gives them free reign to add little, little, but it probably would be after he feels like he's gotten what he needs on film. That okay. happens a lot. Like, the director will get what they think they need on film, and then they'll go up to the actors and say, okay, this one, just play with it. Just have fun with it. You know, and the, so they have some extra backup footage that they want to. But every director is different. I remember um, I did The Irishman. I worked on background on The Irishman. Well, so did everyone in New York. Even... People who aren't even actors. Everyone in New York did background on the Irishman. Whether you know it or not, you were in the Irishman. <laughs> okay. But we did these enormous courtroom scenes, like out in Brooklyn, where they would pack 500 of us into the courtroom. And uh, 
and Martin Scorsese would be in this little like man-made wooden shack back in the corner of the courtroom. And you'd hear, cut, cut, you'd hear. And then over the crowd of 500 people, you'd see this little gray haired, this little gray head through the crowd, going through the crowd, going up to De Niro or Pacino, I think it was Pacino at that time, and whispering in their ear. And, and then, you know, you see the little gray head walk back to the little hut. Action, you know, action, like that. <laughs> so I know that, but, but Martin Scorsese, he's worked with Al Pacino many times. He's worked with Robert De Niro many times. They have this kind of shorthand. Mm. Where you know where Martin, where I'm sure if Martin Scorsese were to say, "Give me forty percent more until you cross the fireplace, and then give me ten percent less," you know Robert De Niro would have no problem with that. Right. Yeah. They worked together so many times, um, and Steven Spielberg also seemed to be very involved with his actors and with his crew. It's just as the crew is just as important as the actors, and one's not more important than the other. Everybody's got to be on their A game. Mm at the same time. You know, that's why it takes a long time to make TV and film. That's why it's basically um, one page a day is because uh, everybody has to be in sync. And it's more than just a few people. You know, I mean, it's, it's everybody, including all of the background actors who are dying to get their 15 minutes of fame on the big screen. Mm. You know, I've, I mean, I've been on sets where they've had to stop and go back because background you know that that, and that happens too it happens because of sound it happens because especially in new york city the helicopter going overhead you know you've got to stop until that sound is gone uh-huh. you know all, all kinds of things it is such a slow painstaking process i also belong to actors equity <clears throat> um and i do submit myself for e- equity plays although there haven't been any during the pandemic but nowadays even even broadway shows have changed to the fact to the to the point where they won't get the funding unless they have a bankable movie star or TV star. Oh wow! In in the show, uh huh. Because funding is for Broadway is scarce. It's a risky investment, you know, especially especially post pandemic. Mm-hmm. Terribly risky investment. So the only way to get an investment is to make sure you've got a bankable Hollywood star at the helm or right. somewhere in the cast, usually at the helm. And then, it, you know, if you can get a bankable Hollywood director, even better. But for a, the, the typical equity actor who, you know, that's the thing. I've been a member of equity since 1992. I have never done an equity play, ever. But I believe in it. I believe in the Actors Equity Association. And growing up, it was like my dream was to become, belong to Actors Equity. That's why I went to Williamstown and got those 10 equity points. Um, yeah. But now that I'm in it, I can do it. But you know, who's going to hire me? I'm, I'm not anybody. You know what I mean? You've got to be somebody. Even to get the small roles now, you've got to be somebody, you know, with, with a list of credits. So, I mean, I'm getting some credits on my resume. You know, mm-hmm. finally, finally getting the, the old college credits off my resume. <laughs> as we've already established, that was 35 years ago. Right. <laughs> right. But it takes a long time. I mean, you know, it's been eight years, like I said. But it took me also a long time to find the courage. I think that's a large part of it. It takes a while to find the courage to do what you want to do with your life, to the realization that, hey, time time is finite. Do what you, what you think you came here to do. 
I mean, I think I came here to make people, I think one of the things I came here to do was to make people laugh. Only because it's kind of been a natural muscle for me that I, a reflexive thing that I've been able to do mm -hmm. without much effort. So that is a natural gift. And I think that we should all, you know, be able to identify and use our natural gifts. Right. That's why I'm so glad that my first big break is in a comedy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I know that, uh, you know, through this last eight years, there's been times where you've, you've questioned, uh, you know, what you're doing. Um, and, you know, I've always, my response has always been that I'm proud of you, you know, that you've been self-sufficient and, uh, you know, you're really going after what you really want to do. And uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate that because it's, it's almost like at my age, what else am I going to do? Really? You know? I mean, it's not like I'm going to take corporate America by storm at my age. No one's mm. going to hire me. You know, it's like I may as well pursue my dream now while I can still walk. You know, I mean, mm. that that was the thing. I I, <clears throat> I always accept it, and I do continue to accept the fact that this may all be for nothing. It may all be for nothing, but you know what? The fact that I am in the union, the fact that I have an agent, the fact that I'm auditioning for these parts in television and film, that is my dream life. That mm -hmm. is the dream life that I saw myself living as a child. I'm an actor in New York, you know, legitimately, sometimes working, sometimes not. But <clears throat> and like you said, I found a way to be self-sufficient. But it's just the pursuit. It's just being in the game. Mm -hmm. like legitimately being a member of the union and being in the game, that for me is enough because I wanted to, I am a professional actor. I wanted to be a professional actor. And uh, yeah, it took a long time, but there was, especially in the last eight years, there was never a time when I thought, oh, I think I'm gonna give up. This isn't gonna work. There were times when I begged and pleaded for a job, definitely. Like I begged and pleaded to get a SAG principal role for a very long time. Um, but my attitude was always, I'm gonna try anything else. I'm certainly not going to put any energy, any of the limited energy that I have left into finding a corporate job. No, no. You know, I'm not going to drive for Grubhub at my age, you know, so I'm just going to find a way to make it work. So I will tell you a, a very short story, inspirational story. Um, you know, I'm a tennis player and I had heard, I watched this interview with Martina Navratilova, who was champion of the 80s. She won everything in the 80s. But at the end of the 80s, she was floundering and she couldn't find her mojo. And uh, she wasn't sure if she wanted to quit. And a sports psychologist was un unable to help her. So she talked to Billie Jean King and Billie Jean said, well, is there anything left that you still want to do? And Martina said, yes, I would like to win Wimbledon one more time. I would like to win Wimbledon next year in 1990. And Billie Jean said, well, start keeping a diary. And every day I want you to write, I won Wimbledon 1990. And so Martina started keeping a diary. And every day she wrote that, I won Wimbledon 1990. And a year, less than a year later, she had done it. She won Wimbledon in 1990. So I <clears throat> heard that and I, I'm into spiritual new age things. I'm always doing mantras, I'm tapping myself all over, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I started writing every day. And I think I may have started on January 1st, but I don't remember. I started writing every day. At the end of my meditation, I would write, I got my big break in 2021. I got, you know, just once a day, I got my big break in 2021. And for me, this is that big break because it is the first time I've had a SAG principal role, an above the line role. Uh, 
not that's not the right phrase. It ain't an above the line role. It's a well below the line role. Um, it isn't, you know, Tony Foja starring in. You know, <laughs> Tony and Meryl together again. <laughs> it isn't that. But but it is the first time that I am uh, on a union project in a you know in a principal role. So for me that is the big break. And for me that's not just that it's spiritual magic or anything like that. I think it was a slight shift in my mindset, which made me hyper sensitive to any opportunities that may present themselves. Mm. Like any possible lead to a possible audition to a possible or a possible connection in the industry, because it all, ad it all adds up eventually. You know, I spend a great deal of time on, I'm only on Instagram and I'm really only on Instagram for my, for acting. Mm -hmm. I, I use it to connect with other I use it to connect with actors, directors, writers, producers, you know, and, and, but I've been doing that for years. And I think over time, all of that has an effect. Like it was this guy, um, John Swanbeck, who's a director in LA. And I read his book and I've taken his class and I follow him on social media. And he is so succinct and precise and so informative about what makes a good camera actor as opposed to a stage actor. And there have been a few others too, but he has really helped elevate my on-camera skill to the point where I kind of look, now I come across as a natural screen actor in my screen audition, as opposed to a theatrical actor in a screen audition. I've seen both. I've been in class with both. Okay. And I've seen the difference in both. Um, I call it the Botox effect. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a smarty SOB. But but basically, screen actors don't move their face at all. <laughs> they they don't what? They don't move their face at all, and I'm oh. saying it's because they can't because they're on Botox. But you'll never. But you don't see the people on Law and Order and you know and, and Blue Bloods and all that. They they never move their eyebrows. They very rarely move their face. All of the acting is in their eyes and in their voice. But it's hard for people who are trained on the stage to have the confidence to do that because mm. Dr. Palmer was always telling us you've got to play to the people in the last row. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So, you know, you've got to make sure everyone sees those eyebrows, you know, um, but on TV um, that comes across as very, as overly theatrical. It's almost clownish. Um, but then again, styles change. Like back in the 70s, that was the style for even TV acting. It was a lot bigger back then, mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. I mean, we all saw those women catfight on Dynasty and all that. But nowadays, uh, so back then, okay, here's my theory. Back then, society in general was more, had more decorum about it. So we wanted to see our TV and film stars act out. Nowadays, society has no decorum about it at all. So we long to see people on the screen and on the stage who can hold it together, who contain their emotions. To us that, at least on the entertainment, on the level of entertainment, that is what we gravitate towards now, are people who have emotions and we can see them in their eyes and we can hear the emotions in their voice, but they're not so histrionic. Mm. Because we as a society are histrionic. So we long to see the opposite in our, in our entertainment. It's kind of the way they, during the depression, they all wanted to see movies of opulence and glitter and diamonds, you know, it's, we need that escape 
we need that escape. And right now, everyone's got their hair on fire. So our, our escape is those stars on TV and film that may have the emotions, but are able to contain them. Mm-hmm. That's a fad in acting nowadays. For TV and for screen only, I would say. Anyway, that's my philosophy. That's you right. And you see where it's gotten me. <laughs> After the world on a string now, baby. <laughs> I got the CEO of Netflix on the phone right now. That's right. <laughs> well, Tony, I thank you for sharing so much today. Rich, anytime you call an actor and ask them to talk about themselves, you're going to get a long-ass party. Right, right. So, Tony, so Tony, we uh, end the episode uh, the same way each time with a word of prayer. Okay, let's do it. If we could pray. Father God, I appreciate my friend, Tony Foggia, and I thank you that this friendship has lasted, and that, Lord, I ask that it continue to last uh, forever. So, Father God, I ask that you uh, continue to walk alongside of Tony and that, God, that uh, every victory that, Lord, that, uh, that, that he knows that, um, uh, that his work is, is paying off and that, uh, as he expressed, that it's in the striving uh, that he finds fulfillment and that, Lord, that this goes along with uh, the, my favorite theology that uh, theology of John Wesley uh, t- t- that teaches us to strive to be as much like Jesus Christ as we can. It's in the striving that we are successful. And so, Lord, I ask that you continue to uh, provide Tony with uh, the strength he needs, the encouragement he needs, and the joy he needs. And I ask this through your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. May I say a thank you as well? Yes. Thank you, God, for all of the abundance that flows into my life through others, like my friend, Rich Moran. Uh, so much abundance has flowed into my life through others, and through Rich in particular. Thank you very much. Amen. Amen. Thank so, you. So, yeah, now you got to let me know when this is going to be on, because I got to, you know, I got to let my, I got to let my fans know. Okay. <laughs>